0: Welcome to another episode of the Battlefields and Bourbon podcast where we sit and sip, talk all things Civil War history and bourbon whiskey. I'm Jack, joined as always by my co-host Elijah, and uh, we're joined by a special guest today, but we'll talk about him in a second. He is here with us. Uh, I'm excited for this episode, but I'm going to let Elijah take us straight into the bourbon for this one.
1: Yes, we've got Colonel E.H. Taylor Small Batch uh, from Buffalo Trace Distillery. This is one of their uh, harder-to-find expressions. this one is bottled at 100 proof. Being bottled in bond would mean that it's made by one distiller, at the same distillery, in a single distilling season, bottled at 100 proof, and aged a minimum of four years. Um, this is just like a federal uh, quality assurance when it comes to the world of whiskey and bourbon. Um, that bottled in bond act itself was passed back in 1897, um, back when bootleggers and uh, proprietors and others were kind of passing off whatever they could as whiskey, uh, whether it be kerosene uh, or tar or what have you. Um, All these other, you know, not whiskey items are being passed off. And that's where this comes in um, with government quality. And that's just kind of stuck ever since um, to that day. So that's like a little uh, piece that every distillery kind of does in in terms of their own expressions. Um, But this one named after Colonel E.H. Taylor, um, he was one of the uh, founders of the old fire copper distillery back In the 1870s, um, when Buffalo Trace was first getting its roots out in uh, Frankfort, Kentucky. Um, But yeah, this one is, uh, like I said, 100 proof, 50% alcohol by volume. And we can go ahead and give this one a try. Yeah, that was a good pop too.
0: So I'll talk a little bit about our guest (laughs) because he's giving me looks. We are joined by the one and only Nicholas Pacerno of uh, fame in both history and collecting world. Nick's not a bourbon drinker, so the faces he's making as we're talking and looking at it is, uh, is funny. Let's give it a little nosing. Nick, I'll describe to you what I think it smells like and tastes
1: like. <laughs> Cherries. Cherries. Heavy on that one. Cherries and like baking spices. You want to
0: smell it, Nick? Smell it from the bottle.
1: got a nice sweet what does it
2: smell like cherries
1: see exactly yeah, there you, you go, just Nick. put that thought on your mind but yeah no it's a it's a good one it's a little little younger than the single barrel that we had in a in another uh setting um but it's it's about i think six to eight years whereas the single barrels in the the nine to ten range um Allegedly, Um, this one being a Buffalo Trace product, they don't disclose any of their mash bills or anything like that. They keep all their their recipes uh, top secret, you know, just to keep that uh, tradition, you know, unique to them. Um, So this one being mash bill number one is a low rye mash bill. They will tell you that much, but they don't tell you the uh, ratios of the grains in this. Um, But it does give a nice, sweet, um, fruity kind of palate to it. Um, But...
0: Yeah, warms yeah. you up. I mean Yeah.
1: It's got a little heat to it.
0: A little bit of heat to it. Bottle. I like to review the bottles. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I think a it's one. a cool looking bottle. Uh the box, what do you call it, the tube that it comes in? Mm-hmm. That's iconic for E. H. Taylor. But when <coughs> sorry, when I look at this bottle I just think right away, like this is something that you would find in like a wagon during the war, you know, the, the bottle shape alone, but then also the the, label and the labels and everything. It's got
1: that classic old style look.
0: Yeah, the little sketch of you know Taylor on the side, very neat bottle.
1: On the tube itself, where it gives you kind of like the uh, the uh, old eighteen hundred style kind of uh, uh, drawings and stuff on it, and the the, uh, the it's not accidental. The let the label tell the truth, all this other stuff. It's like those like kind of catchphrases that they used mm-hmm. back in the day to to. Uh, kind of boast about the quality of their product and that's that's kind of one the of the snake things oil me. style of yeah exactly exactly advertising it's very much what it is but um yeah that's that's e.h. taylor in a nutshell um without further ado Mr. yeah 0.
0: yeah let me uh well let me tell a little bit more about nick here okay <laughs> nick's okay, a good go friend ahead. of mine um known him for a number of years now i don't know probably seven eight years something like that nick is uh served 40 plus years in law enforcement right
2: 48.
0: 48 years in law enforcement, many of those years as chiefs of police for uh, many departments, last at Bridgewater College down in Bridgewater, Virginia. Um, he has been on the board of trustees for the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation for since 2003, four, three. Um, he's the chairman emeritus for the Battlefields Foundation. Do you hold any position currently?
2: I'm currently the vice chairman.
0: Vice chairman currently. Um, you've served on boards like the Lee Jackson Education Foundation. Um the Museum of the Confederacy, and what other ones am I missing?
2: The Lincoln Society the Lincoln of Virginia. You currently sit on that, correct? I am the vice chairman of the Lincoln Society of yeah. Virginia, located in Harrisonburg.
0: Very nice. And Nick is a, a premier historian and collector when it comes to the topic of today's episode, and that is the 1st, 10th, and 29th Maine. Um, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, three regiments in one episode. Well, the story of those three regiments is really told as one uh, regiment per se, but we'll let Nick get a little bit more into that. But ever since I've known Nick, the words "maine have not come out of his uh, <laughs> mouth, you know, unless it's been like you know weeks without seeing him, it's every, every five <laughs> seconds. but for good reason, um, he led the, led the fight for the placement of a main monument on the third Winchester battlefield. Um, and he's, like I said, a premier historian. If it's close to a battle anniversary where this regiment fought, no matter what year in the war, uh, he's probably there close to that anniversary and he can provide a ton of information. Uh, had the honor of doing Antietam 160 a couple years ago with him well, last year with him and, um, bringing some artifacts back to the battlefield. That's probably the most fun part of, of knowing Nick is being able to be a part of those moments and see the looks on faces of individuals. I get to experience that as well. So, Um, without further ado, Nick, I am excited to hear it for probably the hundredth time, but probably not all in one sitting for this. Normally it's, I get a little bit of first main, a little bit of 10th main, a little bit of 29th main here and there. So for the enjoyment to watch Elijah and, and other listeners listen to the full history of the regiment, I'm excited. So, um, if you want to take us to the beginning and tell, I mean, if you want to tell us a little bit more about how you got into this regiment too, take it away. Sure.
2: Well, to begin with, before we get on to the regiment, I must say I'm impressed with your collective knowledge of bourbon and the processes to distill <laughs> <laughs> it and make it. The, uh, it's been uh, educational, and uh, I'm really impressed with that. Thank you. Uh, about the regiment, it, the, the first Maine st- was the first regiment from the state of Maine to enlist at the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861. It was a, three, a three-month regiment. But when they arrived in Washington, D.C., the many men of the regiment contracted the measles, so they never left for the seat of war. They stayed in D.C. Some of them went out souvenir hunting, and I, for instance, I have a piece of wallpaper that one member of the regiment took off the hotel where um, um, Colonel Ellsworth was killed. Another member took some pages out of a, a religious tract from a church in Alexandria. And others stayed in camp. I said they were dealing with measles. And at the end of their three months, they went home. But many of the men that went home said, look, this war is still going on because after First Manassas, everyone thought the war might end. It didn't. So many of the officers and enlisted men of the First Maine said, we need to see this out. So they formed another regiment, the 10th Main, which was formed in the fall of 1861.
0: How many would you say made that transition?
2: Yeah, probably about half. Okay. Probably about half. And it was a two-year regiment, and they mustered out in May of 1863, right during the Battle of Chancellorsville. Well, some of those same men got together again and said, look, you know, we had Chancellorsville, Gettysburg. We fought with the 10th Maine at Cedar Mountain, at Antietam. We really need to see this out again. So they wanted to be named the 10th Maine Veteran Volunteer Infantry, but the governor of Maine would not consent to that. So they were given a designation, the designation, of 29th Maine. They were formed in the, fall, in the fall of 1863. However, they were given a three-year term. They fought in the Red River Campaign and here in the Shenandoah Valley of 1864. In May of 1865, they were at the Capitol Prison in Washington, where they guarded the Lincoln Assassins. The war is over. They're ready to go home, but the government said, wait, you signed three-year papers. You have another year to serve. But the war is over. Yes, but you have your obligation for another year. So they were sent to Darlington and Florence, South Carolina, where they administered the Freedmen's Bureau. And they dealt with former slaves and their former masters dealing with contracts and civil law. And uh, it was called the Eastern Military District of South Carolina. And many of the same regiments in the brigade were also sent with them to South Carolina. And they served there. Until June twenty-first, eighteen sixty-six. So effectively, the history of the first, tenth, and twentieth Maine begins in April eighteen sixty-one and does not conclude until June eighteen sixty-six. In eighteen seventy-one, the prolific regimental historian John Mead Gould is finishing his regimental history to talk about their, you know, their their service. Uh, their their national service. What year is this? 1871.
0: Wow so not too long after he started to compile.
2: He he writes the regimental history that Rutherford B. Hayes actually wrote him a letter and said this was the best finest regimental history I've read. But when he has to title it he titles it the history of the 1st, 10th, and 29th Maine. I don't believe there are any other regimental histories that have uh, three numerical (laughs) designations as they did. Nor were there many regiments that served as long as they did when you look at their collective history.
1: Yeah. So is this more or less the same regiment that just kind of keeps getting kicked to the back of the line when they re-enlist? They give them a new designation in terms of the number? They do.
2: As I mentioned earlier, they wanted to be called the 10th Maine Veteran Volunteer Infantry, but that wasn't going to work. As a matter of fact, I have a Corps badge that has that on it, but it's a 19th Corps badge. The 29th Maine was in, was in the 19th Corps, but this okay. one says 10th Maine Veteran Volunteer Infantry. They were in the 12th Corps at the time. But this particular soldier was anticipating going into the 19th Corps and a a brand-new Corps badge. He's in the 10th Maine Veteran Volunteers. Well, there's another aspect to their history, where where this soldier was involved. As I mentioned, the men at the 10th Maine signed for two years. However, three companies signed up for three. So when the 10th Maine went home in May of 1863, these men formed the 10th Maine Battalion, there was a couple hundred of them, and this particular soldier was in the 10th Main Battalion, and they knew they were going to transfer right to the 29th in the early spring of 1864. Um, and again, he thought they were still going to be in the 12th Corps. They weren't, they were in the 19th Corps. So therefore, there were men who ended up in the 10th Main who served at Chancellor'sville in Gettysburg. As a matter of fact, there was one man lost at Chancellorsville. He was at the Chancellor House when a shell tore open tore his foot off and he would die a week later. Wow. At Gettysburg, they suffered no casualties. They were the provost guard for General Slocum's 12th Corps. He sent six men out in a scouting expedition one night, and um, you know they recorded what they saw. But that was pretty much the only time they actually saw gray-clad men in battle, other than the only ones they saw were the prisoners that they were guarding, uh, as well as the hospitals along the Baltimore Pike.
0: Wow. So I guess come, so let's, Let's backtrack to 61. Everyone's got measles and their enlistments up. So come August of 61, you said about half re-enlist to into the 10th Maine in August of 61.
2: It's roughly about half, maybe 40 to 50% of them re-enlist into the 10th Maine.
0: What is the this crop of men from Maine? What is what is what are the ranks consist of whether it's occupations or or region of
2: Maine? It's a good question. Well, very few of them, if any, were were professional soldiers. Of course, many were farmers. Many were laborers. But Company D of the 10th Maine, which later went to the 10th Maine Battalion, was composed of English Army deserters from New Brunswick, Canada. Wow. They crossed over the border to get the larger bounty. And those who weren't English Army deserters in Company D, they were from Aroostook County, way up in the northern part of the state, they were lumbermen john gould once wrote that they were the when he's talking about the english army deserters that they were a worthless lot devoid <laughs> of morals um and then the lumbermen had a difficult time becoming acclimated to the city boys he called those from portland and the area around portland and there were even some men came from massachusetts um, but it was, it was a cross section uh, john gould was a banker mm mm-hmm. Uh, He wrote the Regimental History, the Colonel of the Regiment, the first Colonel of the 1st Maine was Nathaniel Jackson. After the 1st Maine's term expires, he becomes the Colonel of the 5th Maine. He's then replaced by George Lafayette Beale, who was a bookbinder, would later become the adjutant General of the State of Maine under Joshua Chamberlain. They were close friends. Uh, And and, uh, Beale stays in the 10th Maine for the entire term is Colonel of the 29th Maine until the summer of 1864 when he's promoted to Brigadier General. The next commander is William Knowlton, who doesn't attain the rank of Colonel. He's a major, but he's one of the men in the regiment, one of the officers who had some previous military experience in the Maine militia in Lewiston. Uh, Knowlton is given command of the regiment at the Battle of 3rd Winchester, uh, the morning of the battle, he's telling a couple of his captains, Captains Whitmarsh and Turner, he said, gentlemen, do not be too absorbed with your own companies during this battle today, but I want you to look out for the entire regiment. And they looked at him sort of quizzical, why, what, what, what's, where are you going to be? He said, gentlemen, I will die in this battle today. Well, they're in the they uh, uh, march on to the middle field, early afternoon of September nineteenth, eighteen sixty four. They're encountering troops led by John B. Gordon, troops from Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, I mean, fierce fighters, fierce. Uh, He's on his horse, he's directing his men to fire upon what they they can't see the Confederate troops because they're in a gully but they can see their flags. He says, gentlemen, fire at the flags. I know you can't see the men, but hopefully you will hit some. Fire at the flag. He's getting off his horse to talk with the Colonel, Colonel Good of the 47th Pennsylvania when either a shell or a bullet tears into his neck. Hmm. He falls to the ground. He's taken to a mill near the battlefield where he will succumb to his wound the next morning. Now, I am sure even today, men and women who were on the battlefield, many may have a premonition of death. They're encountering, I mean, it's, it's, it's all about life and death on a battlefield. So I'm sure he was the only one who had a premonition of death on that battlefield that day. However, I also own his letters. And in all his letters he sends to his wife, Harriet, he signs them all, Love, William, except the letter the day before the battle. That letter is the only letter signed, Goodbye to all, love William. Wow. So he had a preeminence of his death. Well, when he dies, command is given to George H. Nye, who is also from Lewiston, Maine, who works in a textile mill. Uh, That was his only background, was working a textile mill. And he would lead the regiment until the end of the war, until June of 1866.
0: Hmm. And Nye was he, he? He had company command, correct? He did. Before he, was, this?
2: he was a captain of Company K. Um, he was a he was a another prolific writer, and I have his letters, uh, about sixteen hundred letters. Wow! And his let his wife Charlotte, who we referred to as Charlie, and his letters are very, very um, poignant. You know, my dearest Charlie, my dear love Charlie. She would die in 1885 and it devastated him. And he would remarry after the turn of the century. And then he would pass away in 1908 and he's buried at Arlington Cemetery. But he wrote Charlie probably two or three times a day. Wow, wow. Sometimes, because of the scarcity of letter writing paper, he would turn the letter upside down and write in the margins. <laughs> so you, wow. when, when you read his letters, you have to read them one way and turn turn paper upside down. One letter. That he wrote. He wrote a letter in November of 1862, right after the Battle of Antietam. Now, they had lost their daughter, uh, Georgie, earlier that year, Georgette. And he's writing to Charlie uh, one evening, it's a Thursday evening, and he says, My own darling Charlie, perhaps you may ask what has wrought such a change in me. Perhaps it's because I have seen so much of life and death which led me to reason more than I hereto have done. I have seen the strong man in health and vigor of manhood stricken down in an instant. I've seen them die calmly and with a cheerful smile on their countenance on the battlefield, when the air was filled with deafening sounds of musketry and cannon, which was sweeping down the strong men by scores. No fears were in my heart. When I went into the fight at Antietam, I never expected to leave the field alive. None knew my thoughts but the one above. I thought about what our darling used to sing, "Pray on the field of battle. Captain Furbish, that's Nehemiah Furbish, was killed close to me. Some of his blood flew in my face and revolver. I wiped them both clean. To merely look back to see who else was killed, in a few seconds his lieutenant was killed. He was sitting on the fence right next to my side. Almost at the same instant, one of my men was killed close behind me, the ball could not have passed more than an inch from me. The splinters were flying from the fences and trees, but I felt no fear. I knew not what the next bullet would send me to where our daughter Georgie dwelt. And why should I fear? She met death bravely, should not I? And death had no terrors for her. Why should they for me? She hoped to welcome me and the other hereafter, do uh, do not I hope to welcome you? She died believing in a happy hereafter and should not die, but why go on in this catechism? God, in his infinite mercy, saw fit to pass me through the fiery ordeal. For what good purpose the future can only tell. Perhaps I am yet destined to meet my death on the battlefield, but he alone knoweth. But if that is to be my fate, I hope I may die fearlessly, for I hate a coward. I have but once to die, and if I had a thousand lives, I would give them all for my country. Nye really expressed his innermost feelings when he wrote to Charlie. And with the amount of letters that he did write, there are numerous instances of him showing the depth of his, of his conscience and what he witnessed on, on battlefields. Uh, and we're fortunate that his letters survived, as well as all the letters Charlie wrote back to him. And, he, and at the end of every letter, he said, Charlie, I only received one letter from me this past two days.
0: <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> I know.
2: He he was like, I mean, he probably received more letters from her than most soldiers received from their wives. Yeah.
0: So so leading up to, you know, like you said, I think you put it very well that like what's con- what's on his conscience because and, and, you often don't, you can see the picture of the soldier. You might be able to read a letter or two, but they're not going into detail like that. So to be able to kind of jump inside the mind of a soldier and what they're witnessing and specifically his you know, him being able to relate what he's seeing on on the the fields around Antietam Creek near Sharpsburg and relate those actions and, and heroic deeds of his, you know, comrades to then the death, the innocent death of his daughter. Um, I think it's pretty eye opening for folks and I guess catch us up to September. So from August of 61 to September, what is the 10th mean? Because this is probably their not first contact with, with.
2: Well, Antietam's not their first battle. Yeah. Their first sort of skirmish was here in Winchester during the, uh, the retreat from Winchester upon Stonewall Jackson coming down into town in May of 1862. Mm-hmm. John Gould called it the Great Skedaddle. They left town. They were actually uh, they were the last regiment to leave Winchester. So this long, is
0: first Winchester. First Winchester, May twenty fifth,
2: eighteen sixty two. They skedaddled all the way up to Williamsport, Maryland. Oh my goodness! Um, I have the letters written by the wife of the quartermaster, and she recorded that they were being shot at as they are retreating, not by the oncoming Confederate troops under Stonewall Jackson.
1: The citizens of Winchester.
2: Exactly. Yep. The citizens of Winchester from the second story windows. Mostly women. (laughs) Women found revolvers and pistols and whatever else they had. They were shooting at them. Um, So they retreat all the way to to Williamsport. One man, Andrew Walton, I have his letters, decides to stop and rest somewhere near Bunker Hill in present-day West Virginia. He's there with another man who records what happens. As they're sitting on a log through the dense tree line where they were sitting, comes, and he calls him the Cavalier Ashby. Turner Ashby appears. Hmm. He's on his horse with several other men. They see these two 10th (laughs) Mainers sitting on the log. He says, surrender. Well, the one man who writes about it, his name was Maines, he surrenders. He says, I'm, I'm done. I surrender. But the other one, Andrew Walton, goes to grab his musket. Turner Ashby pulls his revolver out of his out of his uh, holster, aims it right between Andrew Walton's eyes, shoots and kills him. Wow! And I believe that revolver is on display at the Stonewall Jackson House Museum. Wow! So he's killed by Turner Ashby. We know he's killed by Turner Ashby. Uh, so that's May. That's in, That's May. It was. It was. It was May twenty-sixth. The fifth. Twenty-fifth. One day. One day. Oh,
1: that was on the twenty-sixth. Right. And then Turner Ashby had to go from May. Oh, well,
0: he dies June 6th. Yeah, just down there. They had to go so up, they, they up aren't, the valley. So they aren't a Harrison part Bert. of the pursuit of Jackson back up the valley?
2: No. No, they stay in Williamsport from there. They go to Harper's Ferry. Uh, they stay with Banks. Yeah. They were with Banks twice. And neither time are they with Banks that, <laughs> that they really feel like they've been successful. They were with Banks here, the Army of, of Virginia, Banks Army, when they're in Winchester. Yeah. When they're the 29th Maine, they were with Banks in the Red River Campaign. When Banks got Porter's gunboat uh, fleet uh, stuck in the Red River, and the men of the 29th Maine and the, I believe it's the 96 U.S.C.T. had to build a dam to raise the level of the water so they can float the gunboats back down, back down the river. But that was that was another debacle that uh, Nathaniel Prentice Banks was yeah. involved in. So,
0: Speaker of the House. Right.
2: Yeah. Speaker of the House, yeah. Governor of Massachusetts, but he had great political backing.
0: Oh yeah. Lincoln liked him, right? Liked him, absolutely. Yeah. I so summer of sixty two, where's the tenth main?
2: Well, before they fight at Antietam in August of eighteen sixty two, they're at near Culpeper. Okay. And they're engaged at the Battle of Cedar Mountain. That was a particularly um, tenuous situation they were there, because they're ordered to go out into a field. To leave their cover behind and be the only regiment to advance by themselves, uh, George Beale is is horrified at the prospects of that. And the is it man, a cornfield, a wheat it, field? Near a wheat field. Well, he almost gets into a fistfight with the aide de camp for the commanding officer, a man by the name of Louis Paluzzi, and they're screaming on the battlefield. But <laughs> Beale relents, and the men, you know, leave their cover they were exposed and the firing was so intense that one man wrote that when he took off his blanket from his knapsack there were no two pieces of cloth that could stick together in the middle of there was together in the middle of the blanket. Oh my gosh. He was a, he said it was hailing bullets. Lost a lot of men there. They lost you know the first officer a man by the name of Andrew Cloudman they later named the GAR post in Maine after him. But uh, one man, Abile Edwards. Uh, Bile letter, Edwards' letters still exist. They're in a book called Dear Friend Anna. Well, he wrote a letter to his sister, Marcia, that's not in the book. And in the letter, he wrote Dear Marcia, you remember I spoke to you about that hat that was shot during the battle, the late battle at Cedar Mountain and Culpeper? Well, I cannot send you the entire hat, but I can send you the bullet hole. <laughs> and here in front of me, I have the bullet hole from his cap, from his forage cap, that was left uh, after the Battle of Cedar Mountain. Edwards, would, uh, Edwards served with George Nye and George Nye's Company K. And um, uh, he, was, um, he was a faithful soldier. He had some lung problems and he would actually died early. He died in the 1870s in Massachusetts. and He's buried in, uh, near Casco, Maine. But that's the bullet hole and uh, his, letters, uh, his letters have been published.
0: What are, uh, what are the casualties at Cedar Mountain for them?
2: Uh, they lose about uh, 172 men. Um, th- there's, there are actually two monuments at 10th Maine and Culpeper. One's on the battlefield that John Gould and another man who's the color corporal, a man by the name of George Ayer, they have a monument to the regiment made and placed on the battlefield. They're there right around 1911, 1912. And there's another much larger reg- that lists the men who were killed or, or some of them and that large block it's a granite block is in the Culpeper National Cemetery uh so when some people ask well can you tell me how to get to the monument of the 10th Maine at Cedar Mountain and I have to say which one and most people yeah. believe there's one <laughs> but there's one on the battlefield right there where they had to leave that exposed position as a matter of fact there is a there was a stereo view that was done by Timothy O'Sullivan uh, of the five officers of the 10th main standing, right near where the monument is.
0: That's the picture you'll see in the episode cover with right. the five guys standing there.
2: But he took a later photograph that I was able to discover and prove that there are also those same men. It's called um, Graves on the Battlefield. Those same men are further down that little hill, and they're looking at the graves of their of their former comrades who were left on the battlefield and you see them all there. Wow. Wow.
0: So from Cedar Mountain, then we can get back to Antietam now. Set up I guess the tenth main in their action and, and kind of what um Nye as he's writing his letter to his wife, what what is the tenth and what is Nye experiencing during the Battle of Antietam?
2: It was about seven fifteen in the morning. They're coming down uh Stone Tay is the Smoketown Road. They're coming from Keatiesville area, where the 12th Corps camped. Their corps commander is Joseph King Fenno Mansfield, just appointed corps commander three days before the battle. How old is he? He's in his fifties. Uh, oh. um, his one of his claims to fame prior to the Civil War was he was had a um, a leading role in the construction of Fort Pulaski in Georgia. Uh, Mexican war veteran, and he's given command. And they're approaching an area of the battlefield called the East Woods. Uh, in the woods, they're facing men from Georgia and Alabama and some from Texas. They're deployed along a another fence line. Nye writes about that and that uh, some of the men are sitting on a fence. Uh, and... They're being de- they're being deployed there by, by 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 Mansfield, when Mansfield orders them to stop firing because she's shooting at our own men. Mansfield thinks the Confederates in the woods are part of Hooker's First Corps on the way back after advancing, you know, th- through the North Woods. One of the men, sergeant by the name of Libby, said, "General, no, they're not. They're Rebs." <laughs> Captain Jordan uh, states the same thing. He said, "No, sir, they're, 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 those are Rebs." Mansfield turns, looks, says, "My goodness, you're right." And then, when he turns, Captain Jordan sees a red spot in Mansfield's white shirt. He'd been shot. They take him down from his horse, and they bring him to a depression just behind the East Woods. And the depression is still visible today. He's later taken to the line farm and would uh, would die the next morning. Uh, so, so
1: he realizes he's wrong as he's been hit.
2: That's right. Well, that's right, and. and Remember, I mentioned that they were taking souvenirs when they were in the first main. Well, they took souvenirs off his body as he as. Oh gosh, Um, George Nye gets his hat. Captain Jordan was with him. The same
0: guy that wrote the letter you read. Same guy
2: wrote the letter. Gets so
0: he's feeling all these emotions, but he's like, "I think I'm going to take that with me."
2: I think so. Yeah, (laughs) he doesn't (laughs) write that to his wife. (laughs) Grieving piece. Captain um, Captain Jordan gets the hat cord. And a man in Company F grabs his gauntlets. He later gives them to to Captain Knowlton. Knowlton's not in Antietam. He's sick. But when Knowlton returns, he gets the gauntlets of of General Mansfield.
1: They're just picking him apart.
2: Yeah. So later that year, George Nye sends Mansfield's family the hat.
0: So he gives it back. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's
2: respectable. Well, (laughs) not only he gives it back, he sends it back, but they send him a letter. And I have this letter in my collection. It says, thank you for returning the general's hat. He was a patriot, brave as can be, and a, and a, a true representative man. Please accept and are enclosed a light cavalry saber of our manufacturer. Well, that cavalry saber was made by the Mansfield and Lamb Sword Company. They were relatives of General Mansfield. Uh, they were located in Forestdale, Rhode Island. So he gets a sword for returning the, the, the hat. Fair trade. Well, yeah. And, and about, I had the letter, so I knew about the history of it. I also knew that the sword was on his casket, uh, before they lowered it down to his grave at Arlington, but always wonder what happened to the sword. Well, about 30 years ago, I was contacted by a George Knight descendant. And, uh, you know, they asked if they can see his letters and his diaries. Cause I have his diaries as well. I said, mm-hmm. "Sure, if you come by and see him, why don't you come in May? Because May is usually the time I leave New England. I was living in New England at the time. Why don't you come down then, and I'll take you, give you a tour of the battlefields? Because I go to Virginia during that during that month." And they said, "Sure." So they came by, and I gave him tours of all the places where George and I fought and served. I took him to the uh, East Woods at Antietam, took him to Culpeper, took him to Relay, Maryland. Uh, and in Harper's Ferry. Uh, and, you know, they said, you know, they came to my house and they said, uh, you know, there's something here we want you to have. And uh, I said, and they, they unrolled an army blanket and in it was a light cavalry saber, a Mansfield and a lamb, dated 1863, engraved with George Knight's name on one side and all his battles on the other. Wow. And he just gave that to you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we did a legal document to make it all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, of course,
1: of yeah. course, but we have, wow. we have a
2: legal document. I think you know, I, I paid him for it, but you know, certainly it was a, it was a nominal fee.
1: But for something like that, I mean, that's yeah.
2: well, they wanted to they wanted to remain with the rest of it. I mean, I had the sword belt he he carried it on. Really? Yeah, uh, and of course I had the letter and I had all his letters, his diaries, and his insignia, his photographs. Um, it belongs together. Yeah, all his company books. I acquired the Nye collection in 1986 at an auction. I'm sorry. I learned about it at an auction, and I bought it subsequent to the auction. And, it's, and it's, there's about 8,000 pieces in that collection. Letters, books, orders, um, muster rolls, photographs, part of the regimental flag that was carried at 3rd Winchester. Uh, there's quite a bit. Wow. So they wanted him, they wanted it to be uh, uh, returned to his buddies. And that's not the only time something like that happened. And um, right around 2007, 2008, I get a phone call from a family in Charlottesville. Uh, they knew of the, the president of Bridgewater College, uh, Phil Stone, is a Lincoln scholar, uh, very, very well-known and respected Abraham Lincoln scholar. They called him and asked if they can get an appraisal of a Lincoln photograph they had. It's a ferrotype. He said, well, I couldn't do it, but my police chief can. So they called me. And I said, I'll be delighted to. They said, well, do you have anything of Lincoln's? I said, I have a couple things. But, but I focus on the state of Maine during the Civil War. And the woman paused, and she said, well, my husband's great-great-grandfather's brother was killed at Antietam. Well, then I paused, because there were only two main regiments at Antietam that were actively involved, the 7th and the 10th. So our husband got on the phone. He said, um, I said, well, what was your ancestor's name? He said, his last name was Reed. I said, was his first name Asa? And there's a pause. <laughs> Next thing you know, I said, how did you know that? I said, I have, he was in George and I's company. I have the letter George and I wrote to Charlie describing his death. So I made a copy of it, brought it to their home in Charlottesville, gave it to him, and I did the appraisal on the Lincoln piece. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman said, I'll be back in just a second. He comes back with a photograph album, a Civil War period photograph album, a carte de visite album. He said, I want you to have this because Asa belongs with his buddies. Again, it belongs with his buddies. Open it up, and there's a photograph of Acer Reed in his uniform uh, with um, bayonet and holding a book. Uh, and he's wearing his VMM belt buckle, wow. which stood for Volunteer Main Militia, but John Gould said it stood really for Very Mean Men. I <laughs> heard that too, yeah. Um, and he gave it to me. Wow. Uh, and what are the chances that's going to happen? I'm, that's the only CV I've ever been given, Cartoon card I've ever been given in Virginia. It happens to be somebody from the regiment that I've been collecting for the last almost 50 years.
1: Now I've got to ask, because I'm sure a bunch of people that are listening to this are going to want to know, what is your draw to this regiment among the many, many others that served during the war? What, what, what started your interest in collecting their, just their stuff? Sure,
2: good question. In the 1970s, a very close friend of mine, he's now deceased, was a well-known collector of, of Maine photographs and, and uh, memorabilia. And he lived in Maine, he lived in the mountains of Maine, near the Canadian border, he acquired Colonel Beale's trunk and his uniform and some of Colonel Beale's items. And at the time, I was collecting anything identified, but I also had a focus on 3-inch artillery projectiles. So it was was a diverse amount of collecting I had done then. But I realized I couldn't buy it all, so about six months after acquiring Beale's uniform and the trunk and such, I learned about the existence of Knowlton's uniform, his letters, his camp chairs, cartridge boxes, his sash and some other items. And I acquired that, and I said, "You know what? I'm just going to focus on the, the first 10th to 29th Maine." And um, there was a presentation story that a very well-known dealer had for sale, but it was about half a year's pay, and I couldn't afford it, but he had a photograph album that was a couple hundred dollars. I could afford that. And uh, about 10 years ago, I found the sword again, and now I could afford it, and I uh, I added it to the collection. Very uh, nice. It's a beautiful, um, beautiful uh, presentation sword for one of the captains in Company G. Wow. So that's how it started back in the mid-'70s.
1: Awesome. Love hearing that. Now, this this was uh, when you had mentioned, uh, I guess it was Nye's sword. Mm-hmm. Do you display that with the sword belt? Yeah, talk do about that. Do you have the, <coughs> the snaps attached to the sword?
2: Like, do you keep that together or separate? I, I don't or? keep it with the belt. It's, 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 I, how I do have it displayed, it's uh, displayed with the blade and with the scabbard separate. Mm-hmm. So people who see it can read what's on the blade. Because on one side nice. it says George H. 9 and his rank. Mm-hmm. And the other side lists all the battles. And now he writes about that. He had that done after the war. Shortly after the war, he had the blade etched, acid etched with the battles and his, his name. Now, this, it's interesting, what's interesting about this sword is, in January of 1865, the Mansfield and Lamb Sword Company sends a letter to, to George and I, I own the letter. And it said, enclosed is a scabbard to replace the one that was damaged during the Battle of Cedar Creek. <laughs> so we know.
1: They're taking good care of him now.
2: Well, we also know that sword was at Cedar Creek. Mm-hmm. And I've got a wonderful letter about what happened to him at Cedar Creek. Uh, he he writes this letter on the same day as the battle. Uh,
0: so this is Nye. This
2: is Nye. So he's in
0: he's in regimental
2: command. He's in, he's in command of the of the regiment. So this Cedar is Creek.
0: the 29th ninth Maine Cedar Creek a yeah. month later after Knowlton is killed. Right. Um, where are they Where are they at at Cedar Creek?
2: Well, they're. Um,
0: I know it's going to hurt to say it,
2: but <laughs> they're they're at where a quarry is now. Yeah. Uh, they're in uh, uh, where. Where Nye and the regiment had the, the heat of the fighting is in, is, uh, now the, is now a big uh, ditch. It's a quarry. However, their first stand is still preserved. Where they had their first mm-hmm. stand, that is preserved. And um, as they fall back, because they're being, you know, the uh, troops under Jubilee's troops are pretty much running them out of their camps. Their 19th Corps camp, and their camp is at the end of the 19th Corps trench line. They're the last regiment on the 19th Corps trench line.
0: Going west, technically. Going west yep.
2: across the railroad tracks. Uh, they're up on a little...
0: Which were not there at the time of the battle.
2: No, we're not. <laughs> uh, so they would camp there and they fall back. Is that ha-
0: hill, you were going to say, going up the hill, going up is the that back. hill a part of what we know as Red Hill when interpreting
2: the battlefield? That's a different part. This, okay. Th- this that's this a little th- bit north of it. That's right. so a little bit okay. north of it. Um, so uh, they have their, you know, they're in their camp. They, go, they, go, they climb a the hill. And Confederate troops are crossing Meadow Brook. That's that little brook that that yeah. flows behind Bell Grove. Uh, Gould writes about that, and they have their first encounter there. They could say they can see Meadow Brook from their first stand, so it's right in the top of that hill uh, where they can Looking see down, it. Looking down, yeah. Because yeah, they go further back um, towards could, the quarry. Towards the quarry, you wouldn't be able to see it. So we know that that land's still preserved because uh, the, they couldn't. You can't go further back now because the berm is there, and that berm prevents you from going back. But uh, they had their first stand there. But Nye is wounded later on in, in an area called the Peach Orchard. And uh, Where was in, this at? Near, the, near Shipley Farm, um, Bellevue, uh, closer to, to where the, uh, uh, the quarry offices are. Okay. As wow. They, as they're going back, it's later on. And he writes from the camp of the 30th Maine, because he goes there after he's, after he's wounded to get stitched up by the surgeon. And the colonel was a close friend of his, a man by the name of Hubbard. And stated, dated, Winchester, Virginia, October 19, 1864. Dear Charlie, you may be somewhat surprised at receiving a letter from me at this place, but strange things happen nowadays. So you must not be surprised as we had a severe fight this morning. It commenced before sunrise. I cannot give you all the particulars of the fight now, but our regiment was engaged and suffered considerably. I received a rather severe wound for the time being, but it will not lay me up a, quite, a great while, as I have just had my wound sewed up and dressed by the surgeon of the 30th Maine. I was struck by a mini-ball on the right-hand side of my nose. Mm. Oof. It went through my upper lip, knocked out two of my upper teeth, striking my jaw heavily, and lodged in my mouth from whence I took it, and it is now in my vest pocket. I lost my mustache as they had to shave me in order to get at the wound. Poor guy. I was on horseback when I was shot, and I was the only one in the regiment that was mounted. I fell off when I was struck. I bled like a stuck hog. I think I must have bled all of a half a pint. I rode here from the field about seven miles on horseback, and I found myself rather weak from the loss of blood. Oh, jeez. Now... George Nye, if you see a photograph of him, he had these huge mutton chops.
0: None of those are him.
2: None of those are him. So none
0: of those in the episode picture. We'll have to post a separate picture.
2: In the collection, I have a photograph of of him taken as a captain. Then I have a photograph of him taken when he lost his mutton chops. Mm -hmm. And then I have him as a colonel with the mutton chops. And then finally as a brevet uh, brigadier general. Actually, he attains the rank of brevet major general. Can
0: you see the wounds after
2: no, they're not that obvious. Huh. They're not that obvious. Wow. But
0: um, he was also bullet? wounded
2: in the wrist at Cedar Mountain. Hmm? Do you have the bullet? Yeah. I, I wish I did. I was about to say, That'd it was like cool in plan. my
0: vest pocket, and now it's here on the table.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to put it out here and say, here it is. But I know. It would, it would certainly be a uh, a marvelous thing to, to have to show.
0: I'm sure it takes a couple generations, and one of the great-grandkids or something's like, what's this random bullet? And, you know, I'm sure Nye was determined that, you know. The kid at least his kids knew what that was or something. Or maybe he did. not Maybe he got buried, buried with the, it. We'll never yeah. know. Well, he
2: kept his letters together. As a matter of fact, the letters originally came in a trunk. Yeah. And a collector in 1960 bought him from an antique shop in Massachusetts that dealt with removing facades and mantles from old homes. Mm-hmm. And he didn't he bought it, but he was a collector of envelopes, covers, and stamps. The letters were just there. Um So when I acquired the collection in 1980, I think it was 85 or 86, uh, I contacted a uh, a genealogical association, and they contacted me a year later saying that one of their members saw a trunk belonging to George Nye in an antique shop in Massachusetts around 1980, five years ago. Well, I called every antique shop I could find in in Massachusetts, and I got a hold of this fellow. He said, yes, that trunk was filled with letters, and some fellow bought them because he wanted the stamps in 1960. And I said, whatever happened to the trunk? Because I had everything that was in it. Mm-hmm. He said, I still have it in storage. Would you be interested in buying it? <laughs> I said, sure, how much do you want for it? He says, how's 100 bucks?" Well, you never saw $100 come out of my pocket so quick. <laughs> <laughs> so the letters have, they're not in the trunk, because they're, they're all in acid-free containers. But they're right next to the trunk. So they've been reunited with the trunk.
0: These are Nye's letters.
2: Nye's letters. So trunk. the guy
0: this guy in 1960 took a bunch of stamps off the envelopes.
2: Well, no, he left them on the envelopes. He collected the envelopes. And uh, through time, I've been able to probably acquire about 100 of them.
0: What's the one I gave you? That That's was a Beal?
2: A, no, that was John Gould's Regimental Association Gould. envelope.
0: Oh, okay. They had a very, I found one, and it, it was did. on eBay. I,
2: wow. I, I treasure it. It's uh, John Gould led the regimental. Uh, association after the war a very viable regimental association uh, they met every year and they had a they had a cottage built on long island Maine, an island just past peaks island still there so, well one of them is there the other one was sold to the navy after the war and it was it was a navy base but the one that was built for the wives and some of the veterans is still there i've been in it as a matter of fact the original sign saying it was for sale was there with a woman's name and a, and a four-digit number. Well, that woman's father was in the regiment.
0: So it was just one generation, and they're already selling the place.
2: Well, th- they died. There was, no, yeah. there was no reason to have reunions because there was nobody to attend. So you've been in it? I have. Any remnants of? Yes, there's a, glass, um, there's a stained glass window that says 1st, 10th, 29th. Wow.
0: Who owns that building now?
2: Oh, it's, it's privately owned. Okay. It's privately owned. They're there. not going to tear it down? I hope not. They, were, they, was, they weren't sure what that stained glass meant, and I explained to them that was from the Regimental Association. You
0: didn't say, hey, I got a pocket knife. We can take care of this right now if you don't like it.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. He
0: belongs with the buddies.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. I'm pretty much, as you know, Jack, you, and you know this well, I'm a purist when it comes to. I cowboys. know. You'd want to keep it there unless they're it tearing the way, it down. In case the way it was, yeah. So yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then of all the officers in the regiment, the regimental historian who loved the history, wrote the history, would be the historian at every regimental reunion, going over some of their escapades and battle reminiscences during the reunions. He's the last man to, He's the last officer to die. He doesn't die until January first, nineteen thirty.
0: Wow. Peel? Yeah. Uh, lived the water. Uh, oh, cool,
2: yeah. cool. Yeah. Cool. And um, the last member of the regiment doesn't die until the nineteen forties. Wow. But the regimental building was sold to the United States Navy because
0: you were what eighteen then.
2: <laughs> I'll remember that. Soon. I know, I know. I had to get it on here. <laughs> I'll remember that. Um, Couldn't pass up the opportunity. Yeah, so yeah, it was, th- that was a deep, a deep water port for the Navy ships. They would be yeah. cool there. As a matter of fact, some of the gas tanks are still there. There's a couple of silos that were converted into homes on the island. I, I actually, on my 60th birthday, I gave a lecture on the 1st, 10th, 29th Maine Association on that island. Nice. And uh, all those those people are wonderful. Just wonderful folks over there on Long Island.
0: Maine are good people. Mainers they, are good people. They yeah. are.
2: You don't want to cross one. I know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but um, they're good people.
2: They're good people. They're very, very good people. They love their history. Uh, some of the finest historians I know are historians from Maine.
0: Yeah. So I guess we kind of got, you know, through telling all those stories, sp- spread out all over the place. But um, they were in a lot of a lot of heavy fighting. Like you said, they were in 60. Nothing really much happened for them in '63, you said they were attached to Slocum at Gettysburg and did some detail there. But other, what else in '63 were they a part of that was pretty major?
2: Well, in '63, if, if they were in Stafford, Virginia camps, mm-hmm. those winter camps that are still there today, some yeah. of them, uh, they spend their time there. Uh, okay. And uh, other than the battalion, who has to stay in, they go to Chancellorsville with Slocum. Yeah, the 10th Maine battalion. Uh, but they don't reform until October. Oh, it's the
0: 10th Maine Infantry Regiment, not present at Gettysburg?
2: Not as a regiment, only as a battalion. It's a battalion, okay.
0: And then come 64, at what month of, do they become? No, it's the fall of 63. Three. They become the 29th Maine. That's right. And then they go into 64. They're attached to it's the 19th Corps under Banks, right? It's 19- the
2: 19th Corps under Banks. So they go to the Red River Campaign, and they're one of the two divisions. That's when is of- this in 64? Well, um, it's in the spring of sixty-four. Okay. They don't come back down to Virginia until July. Of, and they come, they come basically to straight. To yeah, because they bring th- they bring uh, two divisions. And, and they're at Monocacy. Well, or did you just say they, that? They, they come to Monocacy. They don't fight there. Oh, okay. That, that's where they they march from Monocacy uh, to the Opecan.
0: and join up with Sheridan. What? Yeah. Are they with Sheridan from August? To September nineteenth, or when do they fall into camp with Sheridan?
2: They do that in late August.
0: Okay, okay. I didn't know if there were any a part of that mimic war period stuff with like you know, the Charlestown offensive and no, the Jefferson fight. County. Yeah, Jefferson it's, County, Clark County. No, stuff. They, they
2: spent a fair amount of time in Jefferson County when they were the tenth Maine. Yeah, uh, Abiel Edwards, another great souvenir taker. Do came. we have a
0: picture? Is he one of the pictures? Or no?
2: he's he's the one at the end there.
0: What are those stripes on his arm? He's a corporal. So the guy with the corporal stripes, what's the guy on the left?
2: The guy on the left, it, it, this is um, Edward Burrell.
0: Pull up the picture, Elijah, so I can reference it, because it's all messed up over there.
2: And uh, Burrell, I have in a collection.
0: So Burrell's the guy next to what Nick's about to talk
2: about. Right. This is a camp mirror. Yeah. And it's, you know, you wouldn't know know much about it until you open it and look under the cover. And under cover it says, Company F-29th Maine Regiment, Sergeant E.A. Burnell from Sister Mary, we are thinking of you at home. So they gave that to him. They gave that to
0: him. So yeah, Burnell is the guy, what would you say those stripes were on him?
2: He's a sergeant.
0: So sergeant. He's got that pocket mirror with the back. You can read what it says. Mm -hmm. Um, To the right of that is, who's that one? You said that was Edwards?
2: At the end is Edwards. Yeah.
0: And then below him with the the, shoulder straps to the right and left of the picture is Beale, correct?
2: That's right. That's uh, George Beale, who was the colonel and then was promoted to brigadier general.
0: And then the lone guy to the neck of the bottle of E.H. is Nolton with that fancy mustache and the the one that's kind of mostly his head that is Nolton, the gentleman that's killed on September nineteenth. That's, that's right. That's William Nolton. Can you talk a little bit more about um, Beale and those shoulder straps?
2: So, yes. Yeah. Um, I have uh, one of Beale's uniforms, and I have here uh, a pair of his Brigadier General shoulder straps as well as the label from the uniform where it says Colonel Bill 10th Maine.
0: And just to be clear, <laughs> Nick did not remove those from the uniform.
2: They weren't removed, removed from the uniform. Yeah. No, they weren't removed from the uniform. Guilt free. They, and they, they were in the trunk. With, okay. The Is this th-
0: the one with the Navy uniform? Same trunk?
2: Different trunk. As a matter of fact. See, Nick runs into a lot of multiple trunks. trunks yeah. <laughs> well, I've got like six of them. Um, <laughs> now th- th- there's 40 years difference between the acquisitions of the trunks. That trunk, Belonged to a Navy lieutenant whose brother was in the 10th Maine, and if you recall, when we were at Antietam last year, you held his brother's belt buckle. He was Ned. Killed. Ned, exactly. Ned Brackett. Ned Brackett, very good. Buried yes. in the officer section of the Antietam National Cemetery because yeah, he was lieutenant. He was, he was promoted to lieutenant, never received his commission. I have his commission because yeah. it came with his family papers.
0: And he's killed that Antietam.
2: He's killed Antietam. As a matter of fact, I have an article in the current Antietam Institute Journal about the the belt buckle and how he received his wounds. There's some wonderful very poignant letters written by some of the men of the regiment describing his death and one friend comes onto the battlefield, finds Ned Brackett's body and has a soldier fire a volley over his body. And
0: mm-hmm. wow. Brackett's belt buckle which Nick was just talking about which we brought back to the battlefield last year during Antietam 160 folks you can now see that on display at the newly renovated Antietam Visitor Center Um, as long with what other artifacts are on display,
2: it's on display with that sword that Nye received and as well as Nye's cult revolver that was covered in the blood blood. that
0: he wiped. So that, that, um, Mansfield and lamb sword that he received that was placed on his casket when he was buried post-war at Arlington that you received as a gift kind of sale, um, if that's also on display, you said, so it is, so you, we just talked about it. You can see it there. It's the, it's in that first display case when you walk into the visitor center to the right as you're walking into the gift shop.
2: That's correct. correct. It's, okay. It's, it's on a temporary loan. Yeah. Um, well, you can
0: see it now as of 2023. Yeah.
2: It's, it's, it's there now. It'll, it'll be there in, until next year. Uh, but I was very pleased to, to loan it upon request of the national park service. Yeah because those items had such a significant relevance to the Battle of Antietam. And as you know, Jack, and you know this very, very well, I really believe in sharing their history as much as I can. And I do as often as I can because I think John Gould wanted their history shared because it was such a pivotal point in his life that he never forgotten. And he was consumed by the patriotism that led him to fight and, and see so many of his comrades die. I think this story needs to be told, Yeah, um, and there are, there are many folks out there, many historians who also are interested in particular regiments, and they're doing a great job telling their stories because these are stories that we can't forget.
0: Yeah, and you can, I think for the public to be able to enjoy these artifacts that you've, you know, graciously put tons of your own money into purchasing and getting, you know, all the boys back together um, under one roof and then getting them out to the public for for them to see and enjoy and make that connection to that historic event and then that individual and um we talked about this in the last episode or two episodes ago about archaeology but um it's that tangible but in some cases physical piece that connects and especially with these non like dug relics or now these artifacts that were put in trunks or passed down from generation to generation It allows future generations to make that tangible connection to history and see, wow, this was a jacket that looks better than, like, the one I'm wearing. So, like, if you go to the Shenandoah Valley Civil War Museum, the recently renovated One Story, A Thousand Voices exhibit, Knowlton's uniforms in there. It's not the one he was wearing at the Third Battle of Winchester, but it was his uniform. Um, His sash what else is in there of his? Or I think that's it for that's, him.
2: That's his uniform and sash. And, yeah.
0: and those, you can see that and see the blown up picture that's the one in the episode cover behind there and read about the premonition of death and know and, and his connection. But then also, after you visit there, you can go and stand in the same spot where he was killed and in, in the middle field at 3rd Winchester because it's now part of, the you know, of an established battlefield park. So, I think it's, I'm sure it's cool for you to see these things kind of come full circle. Back in the 80s, I'm sure you couldn't have imagined, you know, this is how it would end up with thousands of pieces of this one regiment. Well, and that, then,
2: that's correct. On the 150th anniversary of the Battle of the Third Winchester, I had 16 of Knowlton's descendants here in the battlefield to um, recognize the 150th anniversary to the minute. Hey, you guys are out there received to the minute. Mortal wound. They, were, they were here. But it's like you said, Jack, and you, and you said it so well. Uh, these men are gone but their history survives and we have to make sure that history still survives and we, we tell their stories and their stories are told very eloquently through the artifacts because the artifacts have their own history. Yeah. And when, you know, you and I particularly, when we see young people come into our museums and visitor centers, they're captivated by it. Yeah. Just as we were when, you know, we were children. I make it a practice when I'm at the visitor center. The first artifact I ever owned was a Civil War bullet that was found in Fredericksburg. So when I have a young person coming to the visitor center who shows a particular interest in Civil War history, and I see that there's you know some passion in his eyes or her eyes, I carry original Civil bullets with me. I give it to them, nice. uh, and and let them experience what I first did, because it's through them that the future of Civil Battlefield preservation is is vested, and. Uh, uh, I just really enjoy seeing that, and, and Jack, you, you were one when the, we, we at the Shenandoah Battlefields Foundation, early on recognizing you and your passion for civil history growing up near Star, Star Fort and, you know, um, displaying and illustrating your passion for American civil history, that's what drives us, that's what drives us, and, and you're know, you a shining example to the board. And to staff at Battlefield's Foundation as you were, as you know, as you were uh, growing up, and that's where our future lies.
0: Yeah, it's cool to see it now too, like to you know, stand on the other side of the desk per se and see those future generations coming up, these younger kids that are getting interested. Because we talked about this before, but growing up, you're like, oh my god, am I like the only weirdo that likes old stuff and battlefields and stuff? And you find <laughs> other people like Elijah and I and. Um, continue to find young people that are into
2: it. Um, I was at the, I was at the visitor center about a month ago, and there was a family of four young young boys, th- from age four to seven, and one of them was telling me the history of Joshua Chamberlain. Another well, one knew history about the battle. Yeah. Uh, they, received awesome. they received a package. They received a package in the mail from me. Later, on. <laughs>
0: more <laughs> than just a bullet. If yeah. you can, if you can a... stump Nick on a question, they're like, "Whoa!" They've <laughs> earned
2: it. they earned the it. Remarkable young young uh, young men. Four, four four boys, and they were there with their dad. And their dad is kept in contact with me by email. And yeah, uh, they want to come back to the battlefield. Yeah. and I told them if they came back. I would give them a tour of the battlefield.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's moments like that, and experiences like that, that makes this all worth it because. You know, everyone knows, everyone that knows you knows that you don't do this for yourself. You don't get any, you know, you don't go to bed at night thinking, I have the most stuff or I have, I have cool stuff. It's like, you know, your favorite part of this, and I could be wrong, but you love sharing it and with other people. And, um, I think that's why I, I love having you as a friend. Cause it's like, how many opportunities do I get to see cool things like this? And you're excited to show people, which is the, which is the best part, um, but I want, I want to jump back to a couple other artifacts that people are going to see, um, before this episode wraps up the, um, the housewife, which is below a, a, um, a cased image you see in the episode, uh, cover that is a housewife. It's more of a more personal item. You're not going to see or often hear historians talk about when it comes to like the equipment of a soldier, but it's very, very important to a soldier. Maybe Nick can elaborate that a little more, but it's, personal at the same time because as we've talked about a couple episodes ago when it comes to bullets or i mean sorry buttons and other physical things that can be found or, or, or seen this is kind of the the hidden or lost key um that often people overlook so can you tell us a little more about that housewife and who owned it
2: well a housewife is a sewing kit and i have about half a dozen of them
0: which is crazy <laughs>
2: <laughs> well i have john Gould's that's a leather one I have a large leather one belonging to a captain and a first man. I also have his presentation sword. Um, but this one's a felt one. And, and when you unroll it, it has the sewing needles. It has thread. It has horsehair thread as well. And it was carrying a haversack. And, and I was able to acquire the contents of the soldier's haversack. There's, there's another mirror. There's Bible. Uh, his musket tools. Um... Even a piece of his tent, but one fascinating piece is a, is a piece of cloth, light blue kersey cloth. And the, the note attached to it was the bullet hole from the wound I received at Cedar Creek. This was the, his pants. <laughs> well, and he saved the bullet hole. Uh, his name was William Andrews, and uh, he was in the 10th and 29th Maine and acquired two tint types of him, one in the 10th and one in the 29th. Uh, the one in the tenth he's wearing a breastplate eagle breastplate and I even have the eagle breastplate well wow. uh, and what's interesting about it is he also and when he was in the tenth he had the mutton chops going on and he and he shaved them before he went to the twenty ninth so it's a different a different person uh, but I, I had the tin types and uh, he uh, you know he was quite a well-known veteran in maine where he lived I believe it was Otis field and his obituary was of uh, his battle record, as well as a story was done on him prior to his death in a local newspaper. Uh, I, I think it was all half a page in a newspaper, yeah. where he recounted what he had seen and observed, and uh, the battles he's, and the battles he was in, as well as the, the comrades that were lost. So he had a very very interesting history when he was in the 10th and 29th Maine.
0: Wow! And then um, the the background picture and all the pictures. Ex- you own all of the pictures that were shown, correct? in Artifacts, obviously. I yeah, own about
2: 500 original images. Yeah,
0: so all of the, the, the pictures of people are either CDVs or other images that Nick owns in his collection. Uh, even the background image, so we we're normally do like battle maps or things like that or state maps with some of the other regimental episodes we've done. But this specific picture um, was taken at a Camp Sheridan, Camp Sheridan. Yeah, and this is north of Winchester, a couple miles north of Winchester. And if you're familiar with the the Winchester area, it's north of even like where, if you're familiar with like 2nd Winchester, the old Charlestown Road that we talked about in sec, uh, episode one. This is a little bit north of that. It's where the 80, well, 84 Lumberyard is today. Yeah, yeah. it's
2: mainly where the, um, where the Winchester – Welcome Center is on 81. Okay. 81 is where the camp was. Yeah. Eighty one. And the Welcome Center sits in the middle of the camp.
0: And this is a picture of that camp. So winter quarter huts. This is the winter of 64 into 65. Um, are they ever at Camp Russell? They are. So they're at Camp Russell, which is south of Winchester, south of Kernstown. In between Kernstown and what at the time of the war was known as Newtown, but modern-day Stephen City, Camp Russell was spread out through that area. So they were there from...
2: They were there um, from from December of sixty four till uh, the spring of sixty five. As a matter of fact, Nye draws pictures of his of his uh, barracks. Yeah, wow. He sends, wow. Them, he sends to Charlie. And he gives her the dimensions.
0: Wow. Uh, <laughs> and then they moved to Camp Sheridan, and this is the one north of Winchester that you see it captured by by image, um, which is amazing. And we blew it up really big in in the Shenandoah Valley Civil War Museum next to our recreated winter hut. Um, so it's incredible. And my, my, my favorite piece of Nick's collection is one that he didn't bring up today, but this is where I can tie this in. Um, you can see this artifact, um, captured and you did an episode of the civil war digital digest with Will Eichler. And you could find that on the civil war digital digest YouTube channel, but as well on history fix In history fix. You're not a subscriber, Nick Elijah. You're not yet, but I am haha. Um, is where you can enjoy historical stories on, uh, online, um, explore movies, short films and documentaries. Um, all the listeners so far battlefields and bourbon podcast can receive an extra 20% off of their first year's annual subscription. If you sign up at www.historyfix.com and use promo code battlefield, that's B A T T L E F I E L D. Uh, battlefield every subscription includes a seven-day risk-free trial so escape into history and watch some episodes of civil war digital digest on history fix and that episode i'm talking about is with a music box that nick owns and this was uh captured by some 29th main guys were, t- were taken uh, go it, into it, it i don't want to say it, it wasn't captured sorry <laughs> that,
2: that, that would have a more um, that, that would have been more unique what happened was, during the 1864 Red River Campaign in Louisiana, John Gould is in Oyles Parish, Louisiana, and there's a house that he sees um, folks removing property from the house, uh, yeah. locals. And he was curious as to what they were taking. And he sees this wooden box. And he said it was, he writes about his diary, he called himself Wicked because he didn't care much for these people who were pilfering through these homes and such, but he took this music box. And as you know, Jack, because you've held it, it looks like a wooden box. You open the lid and you see the, the mechanics of the box, and on the side is a secret door that has the, uh, the switch to make the music sound. Well, he, he keeps the music box with him through the rest of the 64 Red River campaign, and he brings it here to the Shenandoah Valley that fall. And he plays the music in the camp because he, he didn't have radios. <laughs> uh, they had a band that they paid for. They had a subscription to the band. They paid for that. So he would play it in his tent, um, the, the music box. He does not return the music box until um, until uh, April of 1865. And there's a label in the box that lists all the songs. And on top of the label, in his handwriting, he says, A voyal's Parish. May 15th, 1864. Well, Jack, what else happened on May 15th, 1864?
0: The Battle of New Market.
2: The Battle of New Market. <laughs> but they
0: were not there. They were in
2: They Louisiana. were in Louisiana, <laughs> Louisiana t- getting souvenirs. So
0: that's that's one of my favorite pieces from Nick's collection. And you can listen to it play on an episode of Civil War Digital Digest. So you can find that on History Fix. Um, yeah, that's it's one of my favorite pieces because – as you're sitting there and you just listen listen to it, you know this is the same music that men listen to in camp either before battles or after battles, just having to sit there and this was their only form of you know, escape and entertainment. Um, and to be able to listen to the same thing is just so impactful, I think. So go over and check out that video and listen to that music box because it it's incredible. Um, Elijah, any more questions?
1: No, that was pretty pretty in depth. That was a good one. Yeah, no, I, I
0: I've always been excited. Nick's been teasing me about getting this together and, <laughs> and recording it. Nick, is there anything you want to push promote or um, this is your your free time to you know? Is there any book recommendations or where people can find more information about the first tenth and 29th?
2: Well, the, the John Me Gould journals, um, they were published, but the, the the publisher is no longer business. You can you can find them on the secondary book market or on eBay. Is there a title? The Civil War Journals of John Mead Gould. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Uh, The (laughs) Reginald History, you can get copies of that. I've got 26 copies (laughs) of the original. Each one was presented to a different person uh, by John Gould. Uh, And he usually would put some sort of annotation about his thoughts. John Gould was not someone that would hide his innermost feelings. He would express them whenever possible. Uh, Interesting, fascinating, fascinating. Actually, he had a daughter who was a missionary in China and was beheaded by the Boxers during the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. Uh, he was a very, very religious man. Uh, he actually, he was in the, he was in the uh, military order of the Loyal Legion of United States, which was a fraternal group of former officers. He left there because he didn't like the drinking and cigar smoking <laughs> and, and gave up his, his yeah. medal. But, you know, I would c- certainly, I would certainly encourage those out there to visit the battlefields that are owned and operated by the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation. As you know, Jack, because you're responsible for much of it, there's a great deal of interpretation. You can visit those places, you can visit the exact spot which, where William Knowlton was uh, received his mortal wound. He's at the end of the defense line at the middle field. We know that because the site was recorded as being at, the, at that location uh, by one of the other officers. Support the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation. Go to our website, shenandoahatwar.org. Become members. And it's through your membership and your interest in American Civil War history that we're able to prevail in our pursuit of our silver uh, battlefields here in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Uh, and lastly, uh, I think it's an excellent recommendation that folks subscribe to History Fix. Yeah, uh, uh, Will does a great job with that, and Will and Andy. and um, I got, I've gotten to know them, and... and uh, uh, they, they do wonderful work. so, And lastly, uh, on YouTube, there's the Maine at Gettysburg channel. i have done five different yeah. presentations for them. The latest one is on a 10th Maine soldier who was died at Cedar Mountain. And when the family got his body, it was a Confederate soldier. And they buried it in a cemetery in gray.
0: So to learn more about that, go to the yeah, Maine well, at Gettysburg Maine on at YouTube. Gettysburg. That's Lambert's an award-winning building. production, correct?
2: He, he's been nominated for Emmy Awards. He's yeah. received several awards. Um, but it's Dan Lambert Films.
0: Uh, High-quality stuff, very, yeah.
2: Very, he, he is a, he's an eminent professional, so see that too. But but lastly, again, I just want to reiterate, become members of the Shenandoah yeah. Valley Battlefields Foundation. Go to our website, shenandoahatwar.org, and, and help us and um, in, in our efforts to preserve, protect, and interpret our rich silver battlefields here in the Shenandoah Valley.
0: You said it perfect, Nick, and we will make sure that the Linktree link and any links we've got um, – send people to membership uh, of the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation. As you all know, as we say at the beginning of most of our episodes, the Battlefields Foundation is the official sponsor of the Battlefields and Bourbon podcast, and they provide us a wonderful home here for the podcast at the preserved and historic Bell House in beautiful downtown Winchester. So, as Nick said, yeah, find it. If you want to support us, support the Battlefields Foundation because they're keeping history alive and, and preserving as much as they can of it. Um so Nick, thank you so much for coming on. I was excited thank for you. this one ever since we started this thing back in July. Um, so it's, it's truly an honor to have you on. And at least for us, Elijah and I sipping on this E.H. Taylor was very good. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, no complaints with it. And hopefully you enjoyed your tea, Nick. Well, and <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, well, thank you very much. It's been a real joy for me to be here. And I'm really impressed what you folks are doing here with this podcast and this, this entire program. And I'm, and I'm, I'm really pleased that the chinova Battlefield Foundation is your sponsor I think it's extremely worthwhile and um, and you do a lot to promote the history of the of uh, American Civil history thank you yeah well thank Thanks. you
0: guys and we'll catch you on the next one